Well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for this time that we've had to just uh, worship, reflect on you. Take your um, communion. Now I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Speak through me, to me, and to others in Christ's name. Amen. I was in Washington, D.C. this week. As some of you remember, I mentioned that last week that I'd be at the National Prayer Breakfast. And it was at the uh, Washington Hilton, known uh, by those in Washington as the Hinckley Hilton, um, where the president was, uh, Reagan was shot. In there is the largest pillarless hotel ballroom, seating 3,000. So you can see from every seat. And it was built by Conrad Hilton specifically for these prayer breakfasts. Um, as he wanted to be a part of somehow helping that. Well, the whole event had just concluded. The president had spoken. He leaves just a few minutes early because there's so much security around it. They've built in a special entrance and area that he can leave and, and come through. The song was sung. The 2007 Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Tebow, this outstanding quarterback for the Florida Gators, he gave the closing prayer. And I said to Grace, who was sitting next to my wife, um, let's go up to the platform. I want to meet these people. Well, they're all, all the people are moving this way, and so I'm going against traffic, and I never, I have a hard time waiting for Grace, even as we walk through airports and things, and so I'm at least 15, 20 feet ahead of her. And I come to this place, and you know, you gotta go up these stairs to the platform to get to the stage, and everyone's there, and, and these, these Dignitaries are huddled in, in circles saying hello to one another. And I looked at the security person and walked right by the person and got up there. And, and I, I met some of the people who were standing in those circles. In fact, a few of them came over to me. Must have thought I was connected in some way. Either that or they're just really good politicians. And they approached me and greeted me. The Honorable Johnny Isaac and Senator of Georgia stepped forward, shook my hand. I spoke to him for a second. Met Amy Klobuchar, one of the co-chairs of the whole event, our senator, shook her hand, spoke with her for a little bit more, introduced myself, said I knew some friends and they go to our church. And she goes, oh, yeah, I remember you. And I'm going, yeah, she's, she's good. Um, <laughs> I agreed to G- chief joint of staff, Admiral Michael Mullen, shook hands with our U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Rodden Clinton. But my all, uh, really, the whole time I was on my way up there, my goal was to talk with the untitled and, in my mind, the most honorable guest, um, Tim Tebow. And, and I stepped up to talk to Tim, and the security guard stepped in and said, excuse me, Tim's got to get going. And, and uh, he tried to usher him out, and I said, Tim, just a second, and he stopped, Tim stopped. And, and I, I told him how much I appreciated his testimony over the years in the national spotlight and just said, I'm going to be praying for you. And he humbly said, thank you. And the security guard began to step in again. Uh, I'm sorry, he's got to go. And, uh, and, and, and then as he was leaving, I said, one more thing. And, and he stopped just a second. I, I said, I'm hoping you'll play for the Vikings. <laughs> he laughed like you did. And by that time, my wife is beside me. And she goes, yeah, yeah, we'll talk to Leslie Frazier. And, and we'll let him know or something like that. And, You know, Leslie Frazier is the assistant head coach for the Vikings defensive coordinator as well. He was the first coach of Trinity International University football team 
So I know him through some of those connections. And, and I'm thinking to myself when my wife says, it, yeah, that, that'll do it. There's the clincher. Anyway, two days in Washington, almost the weekend not being here because uh, the flight left at noon. It didn't finally t- leave the ground until about 1.15, and they closed the airport at 2 p.m. Shut down due to this, what they call the snowpocalypse, the storm of the century for the last 90 years. But Washington, D.C., just filled with all these people of influence. You could just feel it when you were up there. Filled with power. And who would have thought this city would be what it, what it is today when our founding forefathers put in place this cornerstone of a government? This great experiment, as Lincoln refers to it often in his writings and speeches, where the people... Seek to be self-governed. Our forefathers, steeped in the Bible, whether all of them or some of them knew Jesus or not, really in one sense doesn't matter because they understood because they were all readers of the Bible. Every one of them. They read the Torah, the five books of Moses. They read the, the writings of the prophets. They read the New Testament. And they knew that power must be balanced. They understood that power can easily be misused and even worse, abused. And they were well aware that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. Our founders, aware of this, created a government with a balance of powers. Our government is comprised of three semi-independent agencies. Each has a unique function, including a check on the balance of the power of the other. So let's do a little civil government quiz for just a moment, okay? What are the three branches? Executive, good. Legislative. Judicial. You all pass and can be citizens. Each branch is designed to balance the other. Power would be vested in the hands. It never would. They never wanted to be vested in the hands of a single person like a king or a monarchy. Or in a single group of people. Like a Senate. Power was vested in three branches designed to raise up, represent, and to distribute the power of all the people. And the executive branch is directed by the President of the United States. This branch has the ability to originate programs, right? Such as one we're wrestling with, health care reform. And this power is balanced by the Congress, the legislative branch, which must fund the program proposed by the President. And if Congress does not fund the president's program, the program has never come into existence. Congress also has the right to make laws, but its power to make laws is not absolute. The power here is balanced by the Supreme Court or the judicial branch, which can decree those laws unconstitutional. See this incredible check and balance going on, and it's all rounded out with the president who has the power over the court, the Supreme Court judicial area, through his right to appoint justices, and Congresses has the power over the president and Supreme Court justices through its right to impeach them. You see how it just is this wonderful connection through revolving terms that allow for there to be a check and balance. And they were purposely set in place by our forefathers who had a great understanding of God's word because God's word was very much concerned with that. And they knew the condition of a man's heart with its tendency towards evil and its 
inability to use willpower. Just illustrating it quickly, Watergate demonstrated how these checks and balances worked. The executive branch had become corrupt during that time through illegal spying activities against American citizens and then attempted to cover it up. The situation was righted when Congress, the legislative branch, began an investigation leading to a possible impeachment against the president. And this is how the branches should operate. Let me ask you a question. What if all three branches were corrupt and worked hand in hand to oppress the country's citizens? What if those checks and balances weren't in place and didn't work? See, often little can be done when a government goes sour. And when a government becomes corrupt entirely, all that can be left is to dismantle it, to clean house. This, as we look at Micah chapter 3, was the situation confronting this prophet as he walked into this city of Jerusalem, which was the Washington, D.C. of their day. He brought God's word. There was sin in the courts, in the palace, and in the temple. The checks and balances that God had given to Moses to create the kind of community where people would be loved and cared for, where people would be able to express themselves fully and yet allow themselves um, through humble obedience to stay constrained by the, the will and heart of God through external laws. It had become corrupt. In a sense, all three branches of government were corrupt. They worked hand in hand. The politicians got their way in the courts. The judges were paid to neglect the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable. The prophets complied with them all for a price and just always was saying, oh, no, everything's fine. You guys are doing well. And he would take some money. This is not new in the theme to Micah 3. In fact, he hints in it about this in Micah 1, this corruption of, of the, the government. And he details it further as we looked at in Micah chapter 2. He talks about people seizing forcefully the property of others. Chapter 2, verse 1, because it's in their power to do so. Remember, we talk about power. It's an important word in this whole passage through Micah. They can defraud a man's house, presumably through legal means. Chapter 3 paints the full picture. The interlocking web of self-centered, sinful greed that was destroying the kind of community that God had longed to create. So as we come to chapter 3, take, um, if you would, they'll be on the screen. If you have Bibles that you're carrying, it's a great thing to have that because you can mark things down and, and follow along. Micah chapter 3, there's three sections to it. And you can look at the three sections. And there is one word which ties each section together. It's the word justice. Should you not know justice, verse 1, right at the end of verse 1. Verse 8, Micah says he's filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice. Verse 9, hear this, you leaders, you house of Israel, you rulers who despise justice, three times. And, and what's really interesting is he, he ties these together with this word justice, there's also this Response from God to each of these situations. To each of these situations, the response of God is silence. You'll find that in each, in each occasion, he is silent. Section 1, verses 1 through 4, concerns judges and the corruption that is in the courts. 
Section 2, verses 5 through 8, concern the prophets who speak well to those who pay well. Section 3, verses 9 through 12, concerns politicians and the entire establishment who do not serve the public good, which God intended, but serve themselves and fill their private bank accounts. Justice, found in verses 1, 8, and 9, has departed from Judah. Silence is God's response. The same silence they gave to those who cried out for mercy and justice when their homes were being defrauded and their property was forcibly being taken from them as they cried out for God, for mercy and justice, who these representatives were to be God's mercy and justice. And they were silent, so God will be silent to them. So let's walk through these verses and listen to Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. He says in verse 1, Then I said, listen to you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. You'll find that in verse 8, that's the same beginning there. He says, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. I, I should have said this is PG, right? Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they've done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray. This is the second section. If one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war or crusade against him. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. And the sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. He's silent. But as for me, says Micah, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. See the same intro there as verse one. Who despise justice? Who distort all that is right? Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come on us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become, like a, will become a heap of rubble. And the temple hill a mound overgrown. With thickets. Well, the first here is a warning to the courts. Verses one through four. Listen, you leaders, you rulers, refers to the heads of the court system. Literally, the word is heads. It's the idea of judges. And they were set up by Moses. Moses um, was so busy when he was leading the people of Israel through the, the wilderness that he was he was deciding cases of dispute among the people. And it was happening that he was spending early in the morning to late in the evening. This story is recorded in Exodus 18. And the task of deciding these disputes was taking all of his time. So Jethro, his father-in-law, who was a good businessman, encourages Moses to begin to divide things up. You know, go ahead and train in, in, in the law and appoint these heads over each of the family to be judges. Men of integrity and discernment who are wise and fair and, and will know how to settle the disputes and claims. Only the big ones of supreme difficulty. You almost can see our Supreme Court system in this whole thing. 
Only the big ones of supreme difficulty and importance really should come to you, Moses. So you just decide those. So we read in Exodus chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Moses listened to his father-in-law. Catch that, guys. And Moses chose capable men and made them heads of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and they served as judges for the people at all times. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way. Catch that, man? Who goes with the father-in-law? Okay, that's a cheap shot. Um, anyway, mother-in-law was just a bad joke. Anyway, um, Micah's complaint here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 is not that the judges were untrained or inept or even neglecting wise judgment. It is really far greater than that, far more culpable. It is that they're actually twisting and perverting this law. Think about it as we think about the Super Bowl today, right? Again, it's a great example because it's a game and it's set up with some rules and some laws and, and they actually have what they call line judges. Now, it would be one thing for them to miss a call or two because they're inept or they just didn't really know the rules. We'd be really upset with the people who put them in place, correct? But it would be truly another thing if they intentionally, with evil designs, called things that were not as they should be in order to throw the game in a direction that they wanted because they knew that if they had betted, they had pocketed some money in this. Would that be just reprehensible? Well, if you think of it in those terms, that's what these judges are doing. They're, they're worse than being just untrained or inept. Verses 1 and 2 says they pervert justice. Should you know you not know justice? Of course they know justice. They've been well trained. They were very well skilled. But you hate good and love evil. You call evil good and good evil. That's how you, as a line judge, are making calls. But it's not about a game and it's not about a little bit of money. It's about people's lives that are losing homes and are, are coming under oppression. So Micah, as a judge of sorts, calls it as he sees it, and he doesn't mince words because it's so abhorrent in his heart and mind as he has the heart of God because this is never what God intended for the community that he was seeking to set up as an example of what it means to live in the presence and love of God, to know his truth and to walk in it. So he says in verse 2, the last part of it, very simply, he says, you're cannibals. He uses a very graphic word. You tear skin from my people. It's a lengthy metaphor of savagery. If you remember Micah chapter 2, verse 2, he says you take fields forcefully or you grab them, some translations say. It's a verb in the Old Testament. It belongs to the, the whole idea of social oppression. They had words in their day just like we do in our court system. Well, you know, like abate and abet, those kind of, those kind of words where, where we use legal terms. That was a legal term. So as you go on and you, you, you hear this word tear, it was a social welfare term graphically describing the heartlessness of one who would oppress another by tearing, by tearing from them their very life. Eating the flesh was, again, a common expression for oppression in the court system. And he says, my people, referring, I think, to those small town rural farmers who were losing their land. And I think he probably knew a number of them. Literally, Micah is saying that the courts are run by officials no better than butchers who skin and bone the carcasses of their own people. The defenseless were skinned of property and possessions to build their portfolios when they should have been their guardians. Micah 3.4 once again ends with judgment. 
As always with God, this is something you'll notice, and I say to parents, this is really important, because it's not always easy to know how to do this well. But with God, the crime that is done, he, he always makes sure the punishment fits that crime. And so you see, they've been silent, so when it comes to the course of their own actions, which God says, if you go this way, you will begin to experience experienced the curse. It's not that I want to do this. It's you actively trust me and walk in this. And as you as people allow my heart to be filled within you, and as you walk through that, you will begin to experience the love and grace and you'll begin to know what it means because you were oppressed, you were enslaved. And now that you have had your chains broken from you, you want to go and you want to do what? You want to set other people free. But that wasn't happening with Israel. They had forgotten where they had come from. They had forgotten all that God had done. They had their chains released. They began to experience... This, this good life, and in this good life, they began to turn that which was good, and they began to love that which is evil in order to pad their own comfort. And so the word, verse 4, cry out, is a very technical term, which is a term that is used when a person appeals to a judge when they're being victimized. And, and God says, unconcerned for the heartbreak they cause, and heedless of the lives they mangle, untouched by the cries of the defenseless, and stone deaf to the pleas of the widow and the orphan, they also would experience the deaf ear of God to their cries when their actions bear fruit and they experience the curse. That will always happen in a life that seeks to in its own selfish, sin-directed way. And by this, I need to get us to be thinking about sometimes we take words like sin, they lose their sense of understanding. We take words like hell, and we, they lose their sense of understanding. What God is saying is if you choose a course that is self-centered and self-concerned and defensive and constantly getting what you need for yourself in, in living out of fear in order to move into a place where you can grab hold of and tear and get what you need, what it will do is choice by choice it will begin to cement within your heart a direction and that direction will begin to form a character and that character will eventually move itself into a place where you are separated from others who, who you desire love from, who you desire relationship with and your relationships become means to an end and you you begin to find yourself in a very empty life, which is a life that is filled with hell that you can experience now and experience forever. And Micah isn't speaking to the nations around Israel. He's speaking to the community of faith, the church. And it's a really, really potent message, isn't it? So there's a warning, and this warning is not just to the courts and to the judges. There's a warning in the second section, verses 5 through 8, to the prophets. Another group who betrayed their calling. The balance they were to help keep in check has lost its edge. And the prophets no longer spoke for God. Instead, they patted their pocket and led people astray. This is what the Lord says, as for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare war against him. The principle they abide by is this. He who pays the piper calls the tune. I'll play whatever tune you want. You pay me some money, then I'll go ahead and tell you it doesn't matter how you're living. Just don't worry, be happy. Enjoy life. God's blessing you. Obviously, you have wealth. Obviously, God is doing good things in your life as you prosper. When really, what should be is the piper plays the tune called by God no matter what the 
pay or the cost. They were offering prophetic placebos, in a sense, to the people who should have been called to account. But to the oppressed, he says, the weak and the vulnerable, who couldn't afford to pay and didn't have anything in power or prestige or position to give to these prophets, they would give an unfavorable word. They would, as it says here, wage war, or the, the word is actually to crusade against. Instead of standing up for them and standing with them as God had stood with Israel when they were enslaved and, and bound and in Egypt and, and when they cried out to God, God came to their rescue and to their aid and, and he spoke through the prophet Moses in order to lead the people so that he could begin to bring them to the sea and, and lead them through it and see a demonstration of his power for those who are oppressed, those who are, who are captive, those who are in these positions where they're vulnerable, whether by their choice or not. And he's saying what they did instead is they said, you know what, you guys, instead of, of, of looking at them and having mercy and grace, he looks at them and says, you know, obviously, in your condition, where you're at, you're just getting what you, what you paid for. Your choices have left you to be abused. Your choices have left you destitute. And they, in a sense, crusaded against them rather than coming toward them. And those who abuse their prophetic gifts, he says, are doomed and deprived of them. They will actually lose their spiritual illumination. And God would be silent again. Verse 6 and 7. Night, darkness, pitch blackness, all allude to God's judgment. What's interesting here is that Micah doesn't deny that they have spiritual gifts. Isn't that interesting? Even some of these gifts that he talks about are not necessarily gifts that are condoned in the Old Testament. But some of the gifts, are, they even talk, Isaiah would talk about soothsayers or diviners. He even says they had the ability to, to see into things. And he doesn't deny that, but he states that God will dim and darken the light of his very presence. They will not speak for him. And when they turn to the Lord for a word, they'll have nothing to say. The idea they will cover their faces is this idea that they will actually be coming before the Lord in the way they used to do so. When they would get a word and when they would go to the Lord, they would get nothing. And they would be just surprised in a sense of awe and wonder when they would go out and the people would say that they had no answer from God. Yet in the midst of God's silence and the abuse of God's power, verse 8 stands out like a beacon. There is a voice of power. But as for me, says Micah, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. It's really interesting. He, he talks about basically two credentials that he has. One is that he is filled with power, this idea that he is authority. You find that in Jesus. You find that in the Apostle Paul. You find it in people when their lives are so integrated with the truth that when they speak, it's as if they're authoring the words, the idea of authority, that, it, that they're authoring what's coming from within. It's not like the teachers of the law they said about Jesus, which was really someone who took the word and they taught it. And they maybe really were good teachers. But here when they spoke, when people heard the word, they said the spirit of God is there. The spirit of God is present. God is speaking. And Micah said, you can't deny that. And he calls people when you hear the spirit of God, when you hear the spirit of God, whether it be through... Um, through my teaching or it happens through a teaching in a class that we have or whether it's happening in a small group, wherever it is, when the Spirit of God has the ring of authority, listen. And then he gives an objective measure here when he says here's another credential, not just authority, that God's Spirit was present filling him, but integrity. He says, I'm filled with justice. Any of you can watch my life and you can see 
that what I am saying is matched by the way I'm living. And that's what gives that authority. And so he calls out to these people and he says, you know what? God is still gracious and God is still loving and God is still giving another chance and God is coming to speak to you. He's calling you in this corrupted system because that's the last part. It's a warning to the establishment. Verses 9 through 12. Remember I said verse 9 is very similar to verse 1. He does. He says the same thing. You listen, you leaders, you rulers. This time he's not just speaking to the judges in the court system. He's speaking to the entire establishment. He's saying the whole thing has come off its wheels. He sums up well, Isaiah does, who these influential leaders are. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 2 gives you an idea of who the establishment is he's talking about. He says, generals and professional soldiers, judge and prophet, diviner and elder, army captain and aristocrat, counselor and sorcerer and soothsayer, all of you who hold the reins of the establishment and determines its course have run amok. And so as you go on, you see Micah, he says he points to their building projects, which supposedly at that time in Israel, um, the kings were, as the executive branch, doing all kinds of building. And, and, and there were others who were wealthy as well in the establishment who were, who were building these beautiful buildings within Jerusalem, all at the cost of other people. And so that's why Micah points out the building projects in Jerusalem, which are evidently mushrooming, while at the same time they're tearing people apart and With all this, verse 11, a very, very important word for trust. They lean upon the Lord. It's like, look at Micah, we're we're trusting God with everything. And God's saying, listen to the prophets. Don't worry, be happy, peace. And verse 12 says, Jerusalem so full of hustle and bustle, building and growth, Noise in the rush of the crowd will become quiet and dead like a plowed field. See in verse 12? Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, which is the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. And Mike is talking to us, the people of God. The people who he is addressing are the community of the ones who have been called out, who ourselves have understood what it means to be enslaved to our own sin, to our own selfishness, what it means to be enslaved in relationships that are broken and don't work well because of what's in us. People who have experienced heartbreak of a betrayal in a marriage, people who have experienced the loss in a business and and have experienced bankruptcy and have experienced the pains that have come in life that in that pain have turned to God. And as you turn to God, God's met your need. And he's talking to these people who who have experienced this. And he's saying, now that you have experienced this, I just want you to turn around. I want you to go out and I want you to to turn and to, to meet the needs of the people around you, however God would lead you. Now, I I say this to our body, and I've got to tell you, I am so thrilled with how God is working through us. I am so excited. When I came a couple years ago, we we talked about about reaching out in our community, and I came to a church that has a heart to missions that says, God, you've done so much for us here. We want to do something great for you there. And we do those things, and I'm so thrilled. And I just say in this message as we hear this, it's just that warning again. May we never lose sight of what God has done for us. Right? Right? God has been good. 
this week, in front of thousands gathered in Washington, D.C., man Louis Henry Mars recalled how as he was standing in the middle of the street in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, he felt the ground begin to move under his feet. I've been told by some who have been in earthquakes, it is probably one of the scariest feelings in the world. He said he looked and buildings began wobbing and bobbing. And Louis told us that he heard what sounded like a freight train as the, the earth was just shaking. It seemed to be coming unglued from the foundation. And after this devastating shaking had finally stopped and it had become silent, he saw people walking around, dazed and confused, shocked and in horror. At that point, he, he said, there was no longer rich or poor, educated and uneducated, elite or common, black or white, Catholic or Protestant. There were just a bunch of people with a lot of needs. That shaking had leveled everything. And Louis Henry Mars looked at everyone present and said, in the face of death, folks, we're all equal. In 30 seconds, he said, we stood there as mere human beings, broken and vulnerable. We grabbed on to one another, people grabbing onto one another who don't even know one another. He said he finally began to head home. And he, he, this is interesting. He said, I noticed something interesting as I, was, as I was walking home. People from all different religions. He said, you've got to know Haiti's full of it. It's not just Buddhism. There's all kinds of stuff. People of all different religions. When he was walking home, he said, it's very interesting. What people were calling out. You know what they were calling out? The name Jesus. That, to me, is interesting. All the different Calling out Jesus. And they were crying for help. I heard Louis Henry Marr share this whole story twice. Once to the Midwest group of Minnesota, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, this group that met for a dinner on Wednesday night, and then again on Thursday night before the whole group. And each time, he said, after the shaking, what, what just stood out was that we were just human beings in need. I mean, think about it. Louis seemed to indicate that the shaking helped him grasp this reality deeper than anything else before. People sitting next to you at work in the offices, the ones that actually even hurt you, are maybe hurting you because they've been hurt. I don't know what's going on. The people in, in your school or classrooms that look like they're elite or the, they got their world just together. The people that you rub shoulders within your neighborhood. The people that are around you, they're just human beings with needs. And we have been given the Spirit of God with all the resources of the world, the greatest resource of all, His love that can change a heart and can remove our sin and, and, and the, the captivity that we're bound to and set us free. And when your chains have been broken... You've got to go, incredible, this is so incredible, this gift of freedom. But then you've got to look around and say there are other human beings who need their chains broken. That's really the message of Micah. And I've been praying that we don't need some great shaking of earth to help us understand this reality. 
I've been just praying that we would be shaken by the Holy Spirit. As many have been here. In a moment, we're just going to close. And, you know, we normally sing songs and respond. Uh, What we're going to do is I'm just going to ask you to be silent. In this passage is silence. There's two kinds of silences. There's a silence sometimes when God says, if you want, if you keep doing that, you keep going there, eventually I will be silent. But there's also a silence that, that God speaks in, that when Elijah stood at the edge, he looked out and there was an earthquake and then there was a, a mighty fire and a mighty wind and then it was still and then God spoke in the stillness. I'm just going to ask you with your hearts just to, to kind of quietly just say, God, what is it you want from me? It may be that he leads you to pray for someone right now. It may be that if you read some words up here, something will grab hold of you. It may be that God is saying, think for a second, who have I placed around you who is bound? Who may even be your enemy but need your love? Let's just close in just as quiet and listen to the Spirit of God.